We're going to start by taking a look at the Sunday newspapers, also the last edition of Those for 2018, along with our panel this morning, Colm O'Gorman, Executive Director of Amnesty International Ireland and founder of One in Four, Shona Murray, Europe correspondent for Euronews, and Jared Howlin, Irish examiner, columnist, public affairs consultant and former senior political advisor. You're all very welcome along. Thanks for joining us. Morning, Susan. Morning, Susan. <laughs> Susan. <laughs> Slow on the uptake, guys. <laughs> a quick look at some of the headlines before we get started for people who haven't had a look at the papers this morning. We'll start with the Sunday Business Post. Um, its lead this morning is a warning from Leo Vraghar. The Taoiseach warns that robots are a serious threat to jobs. So it seems secretaries, cleaners, taxi and lorry drivers, machinery operators and shop workers are among those most at risk of losing their jobs to robots and artificial intelligence, the paper is warning. The Sunday Independent leading with housing this morning under the headline Housing Surge to Spark New Crisis. Uh, this piece is based on comments from Ronan Lyons from Daft.ie and Connor Skeen, the former head of the housing agency. They believe that the supply of traditional semi-detached houses will meet and begin to exceed demand in the new year, but that this oversupply of unaffordable houses will lead to a new housing crisis in 2019. The Sunday Times leading this morning. This is a story relating to former President Mary Robinson and her trip to Dubai. Uh, under the headline Dubai paid for Robinson to visit Runaway Princess and we will discuss this story with our panellists a little later in the show. The Sunday World leading with an exclusive from Nicola Talent this morning the headline Deadly Double Cross and this relates to the murder of Eric Fowler in Dublin last week the paper reporting this morning that Gardaí are investigating the theory that the Kinnahan gang may have killed their own man. And finally the Irish Mail on Sunday goes with I want justice for my mother before she dies and this story relates to disgrace solicitation Declan O'Callaghan from Balladarine in County Roscommon. Now, as I mentioned there, it's the last of the Sunday newspapers for 2018. So obviously... They're full of lookbacks and reviews of the year, analysis and commentary in all of the papers today. Lots of good reading in the papers, uh, all of them today. All the big stories covered that made the headlines this year, um, and there was a lot of them. I think it was definitely a very busy year news-wise. But we're going to start with uh, the repeal of the Eighth Amendment, a massive story that made headlines right through the year, uh, started in January and continued for the whole year. Colm, I might start with you on this. Um, you played a central part in this campaign. I'm sure personally uh, for you, it, it had its challenges. Uh, a very divisive campaign overall. Um, the win was an emphatic one in the end. When you look back at that now, the campaign and the result, I suppose, what are your feelings on it when you look back on it now at the, as we come to the end of the year? Well, I suppose, first of all, we were blue in the face for about three or four years trying to convince, in particular the media actually, that this wasn't the kind of divisive, toxic issue that it was being portrayed as. And actually, I, I don't think the referendum campaign was as toxic or as divisive as was expected. And the result certainly, certainly showed that the issue wasn't particularly divisive, particularly if you drill down into what the result tells us. You know, we found out when we did our first major uh, uh, public opinion research on this back in 2015 that there was massive consensus uh, right across all demographics, young, old, urban, rural and all socioeconomic groups uh, of the need for change and all age groups. In fact, there wasn't a single demographic that didn't want to see very significant change. People just didn't understand either the Constitution or Irish law. And what you then saw over the three years or so that followed on for that was really uh, um, uh, a really deep uncovering of and revelation of the difficulties. So the Citizens' Assembly, for instance, really drilled down into this and the coverage of the Citizens' Assembly and the way that they dealt with the issue, I think, really um, helped to not even firm up people's views because one of the remarkable things about this referendum was how clear people were about it before the referendum even started. Like the RT exit poll when you look at it 
it said that 72% of people hadn't changed their position on abortion in five years and that 82% of people knew how they were going to vote before the referendum campaign started and did not change their vote. About 17% of people changed their vote. Now, that 17% Mm -hmm. is significant, but 82% of people knew how they were going to vote before the referendum campaign proper started. People knew how they felt personally. They knew their own personal position and they were clear about how they were going to vote. And for me, anyways, one of the standout pieces of data from the exit poll was the basis upon which people decided their vote. Do you think that surprised people? So it wasn't to do with the hard cases. It wasn't the fatal fetal abnormalities, the cases of rape, the cases of incest. It was based on a woman's right to choose. 62% of people decided decided to vote yes on the basis of a woman's right to choose. And the next most popular reason was was women's health. So 62% of people decided on the basis of women's right to choose. I think people, uh, um, some people were surprised by that. We weren't. The data had been saying for four years or more that people's positions were much more developed and advanced than initially than politics uh, understood them to be but I think the political system actually moved quite a lot over over those four or five years I think the media still believed that this would be very divisive and that this would be very toxic and sadly I think it kind of positioned the debate in quite an adversarial way I know it's constrained in many ways about how it can do it but you know in the three years in the run up to the referendum you saw very little analysis of the issue of abortion or abortion law or abortion in Ireland in the media with some notable exceptions for instance on on, on this station Pat Kenny's show did some phenomenal Phenomenal uh, reporting and investigative reporting on the issue of abortion well in advance of the referendum itself. But that was exceptional. What we didn't have was the kind of analysis or, or, or deep dive uh, into not just the law, but into the reality of abortion in Ireland, because abortion had been happening in Ireland for a mm. very, very long time, as we know. Sean, I might bring you in here. You would have done a lot of coverage of both the Citizens Assembly and then the Oireachtas uh, Committee on Abortion, chaired by Senator Catherine Noon. I suppose many people would have felt that that was a very long process Mm. and drawn out. But I guess it should be given credit for taking the temperature or testing the temperature of what people really felt about this issue. Yeah, I think it was one of the greatest uh, sort of exercises in democracy you can imagine on a subject like Mm. this because, you know, I know that Colm was saying that people had their minds made up over a few years. It still was a very divisive issue in 1983 Mm. and also culturally speaking, you know, in Ireland having, you know, even when you look at the cases that went to the European Court of Human Rights, for example, you know, one of the, the judgments in the European Court had said well Ireland has had a referendum on this issue and therefore we won't make any recommendations that Ireland has to change its laws when it comes to abortion other than it has to let people let women know the circumstances which they can have termination so everybody stood away from Ireland when it came to uh, this very divisive issue but the um, but what happened was and I I, sta- I was there for all of the um, the, the Rockdus committee um, hearings and the detail of why the Eighth Amendment made such a, uh, a difficult impact on not just women's lives, but also doctors' lives and how it simply didn't work. The evidence, the number of women who were taking abortion tablets illegally without help under um, the shadow of a 14-year prison sentence. They, those women were still going to do that. Uh, but as a, as, a, as a republic, as a, an independent republic, politicians were willing to allow them do that. And, you know, um, their fate... They could have, you know, we heard evidence they could have a ruptured uterus, they could die. Anything could happen to them in their own bedrooms. They would be fearful to go to the hospital. Other detail in relation to the fact that um, when we had the abortion legislation that did get introduced in line with the Supreme Court ruling was that 
it was so difficult for women who were suicidal to actually get a termination. We heard from, I mean, really quite emotional uh, testimony from psychiatrists who said that they had patients who they could clearly see were suicidal and they'd get another doctor to confirm they're suicidal. And then with two weeks later, it might take a while and a third doctor mm-hmm. would say, sorry, you're not suicidal enough. And that and those psychiatrists would have to turn to that woman and say, sorry, we now you're, we know we've made you wait two weeks for a diagnosis. You're clearly suicidal, but the state has deemed that you're not suicidal enough. And often those cases, um, you know, we never knew what the fate of those women was. So, so essentially, when the detail came out about the implications of the Eighth Amendment, that it wasn't just about accessing abortion per se, it was about autonomy and also um, obs- uh, obstetricians who said that they were working alongside this Eighth, this eighth Amendment and they, they couldn't deliver the type of care that they needed to do as obstetricians in maternity hospitals because they were constrained. And of course, we had Peter Boylan saying that, you know, Savita Halepanavar died as a consequence of the Eighth Amendment. So there were so many layers to it that this, um, you know, this constitutional amendment simply wasn't working in the way that it was supposed to. And people made this realisation. But I agree with Calm as well. I mean, I went to the doorsteps on, uh, you know, during the canvas and um, a lot of older people, you know, especially women and men who'd spent a lot of time in the UK over the years, the 70s and 80s, you know, they said well, as soon as they went to, to Britain, they could see the vast difference in how um, those two countries treated women and women's rights and women's access to health care. And they were astonished and they had made their mind up a long time ago. Jared, let me bring you in there. Shona's point um, of the Citizens' Assembly being a, a great example of democracy or an experiment in democracy. There was an awful lot of cynicism around it when it was set up. Um, you know, what would you have to say about that? It was Enda Kenny's decision to mm. set it up in the first place. Some credit has to be given there, but there was a lot of cynicism about it in the first place. Well, I think the Citizens' Assembly did a very good job in, in, in relation to the particular issue we're talking about. But I would share some of the cynicism excuse me, uh, about it. It was set up for a particular reason at a particular time. Uh, the uh, preamble to its establishment was the announcement without any assembly or consultation uh, to abolish the Shannon. Uh, it was brought in then as an idea, if you like, uh, to cover up a, a multitude, if you like, um, I am, and I want to emphasise again, I think it did a very, very good job in relation to this issue. But whether it is, in, in the broader scheme of things, uh, the best outcome for a given democracy that randomly chosen people, who I don't feel have a mandate for me personally, and I'm going to speak for myself, uh, to discuss a whole range of issues, doing some of it very well. The odd bit is bizarre, I have to say. Um, I'm just not sure about it uh, as an institution. And that does shouldn't take away from the good work of good people. Colin, what would you but say? Sorry, just to come back to the abortion issue uh, as well. I, I think as well, you know, we've talked about the campaign that was in the year that was. But actually, it is that campaign, I think, and that outcome this year was, if you like, um, an outcome of the Eighth eight Amendment to the Constitution itself when for the first time uh, there was, if you like, an attempt to constitutionalise this issue, which 30 years later completely backfired and went awry, and which we should not forget that the first entitlement to abortion in Ireland actually came through the X case uh, because of the Eighth Amendment itself. It completely collapsed in on itself Mm. in terms of its own intended function. Uh, it, it, it was such a maximalist overreach. Mm. It wrecked disaster mm. for the cause it purported. 
It coincided then in the 90s, uh, after it had been put in place, with the complete collapse of the moral authority of the Catholic Church, which it had been associated with. And I think when the history of this is written in 50 years' time, as a thing from a few months' mm. time, I, I think that sort of overreach at that juncture in the 70s, and the 70s in Ireland was like our 60s, in the particular instance of the aftermath of the McGee case, where the Supreme Court recognised that a, a, married, a married couple had a right to privacy. That was the reaction uh, of those people who formulated that campaign in the mid to late 70s, brought it to fruition in the particular political circumstances of 1981-82, where we had three governments in, in, in 18 months, extracted promises from Fine Gael uh, and from Fianna Fáil. Garris subsequently backtracked, as we know, and, and the rest is history. But remember this, abortion as an entitlement, as distinct from a law that would actually mm. enable it, came out of the Eighth Amendment mm. itself. Colin, we're bringing in on that point. Yeah, I mean, well, on the Citizens' Assembly, first of all, I mean, I, I actually do think the Citizens' Assembly did an extraordinary job on this particular issue. And, and many people were cynical. I mean, we had questions when, the, when the, an announcement was made to establish the Citizens' Assembly to look at this rather than move straight ahead into a referendum. But actually, I think Enda Kenny was incredibly savvy, not just in setting it up, but how he did it. And he deserves huge credit for that. For instance, unlike the Constitutional Convention which preceded it, almost a mirror body that preceded it, there were no politicians in the Citizens' Mm. Assembly. So there were 66 citizens in the Constitutional Convention and 33 elected representatives. There were were no elected representatives in the Citizens' Assembly. I happened to have a conversation with Enda Kenny at an event not long after it had been announced and I asked him, why were there no politicians? Actually, he said, better keep them out of it. And I think he was absolutely right that it was better to keep politics and political concerns, right? And I mean political with the the game of politics concerns out of a deliberation on an issue like abortion and let 99 people hear uh, expert evidence and testimony and advocacy from all sides and formulate a set of uh, a set of uh, um, recommendations that then go to Parliament, so that a parliamentary committee can do a deeper dive into that, make recommendations to the Oireachtas, and then the Oireachtas will put a question to the people. I actually think it's an incredibly democratic mm. process because there are the appropriate checks and balances, of course, from a democracy perspective, of it going to a parliamentary committee, going to the Oireachtas committee, then going to the Dáil and the Shannon to put a referendum before the people who have the final say, and that's the ultimate expression of a democracy. Yeah, well, I thought po- it was politicians feared the issue of abortion more than any issue that they'd ever well, feared you know, before. It's, it's interesting. In 2016, when the programme for government was being negotiated, Amnesty, we held a, um, an event uh, outside government buildings every day for two weeks during the negotiation of the programme for governments. And, and each day, another 10 people join us to signify the 10 women and girls mm. that would have travelled that day to the United Kingdom. And we were saying this has to be, this has to be in the programme for government. Now, at that point, we were getting pieces written in the papers and, and, and some politicians saying this is a niche issue, only a minority of a minority mm. of, of people are concerned about this. What was extraordinary was that on one particular day, we had every single political party bar Fianna Fáil represented at that event. And we had three party leaders at it. Now, it got zero media coverage, but every single political Mm. party and three party leaders at that event. Um, And at the same time, you had Catherine Zappone, who I think is also uh, is due enormous credit for moving this issue forward, insisting if she was to be part of a government that this issue would have to be dealt with. This would have to be dealt with by government. And that that led to then the decision on the Citizens Assembly. So, you know, I, I, I actually think politics had started to shift 
uh, uh, throughout 2015 and then into 2016 you could that shift wasn't being seen above the line but there was a significant shift for instance a majority of TDs who were elected in the 2016 election were pro repeal of the eighth amendment a majority mm. of TDs and if you reflect on this there wasn't a single political party who was a matter of policy had the retention of the eighth amendment or a ban on abortion as a matter of party policy in that Oireachtas, in the Oireachtas that was elected in 2016. Fianna Fáil had a non-position. Fianna Gael, it was, a, it, was a, it was an issue of conscience, but they were going to move it forward and other parties had much stronger positions. Yeah, I also think that the um, the report of the, the Oireachtas Committee and the Citizens Assembly allowed mm. uh, politicians it gave like them a cover Martin, exactly, to say, look, and Michal Martin's speech I thought was excellent in January last year because he literally covered all areas and he made the points on several occasions that A, the Eighth Amendment's not working, but also that regardless of his own personal personal views about abortion, he had a responsibility as a legislator to ensure that women's safety was protected. And that was the priority. And you couldn't argue with anything that he said in in his speech and it allowed him to lead the way uh, with a party and a party faithful that didn't necessarily support these changes. And I think that's what the Citizens Assembly and the Iraqis Committee, I wouldn't even say provide cover. I actually think that a lot of politicians uh, were educated during that time too. Like we all were because, you know, the level of detail involved in um, but it was something it, they could fall back that's on that's true you know? and then we had uh, also you know a couple of politicians who changed their minds on abortion mm. having sat, sat through the, um, the Rochester Committee uh, listened to the evidence and that's the whole thing about the Citizens Assembly as well when people are given the evidence and not just um, you know the odd headline here or there or their own uh, uh, contrived opinions based on culture or religion then they then they can make informed decisions and that's why what's really important about it and I think Jared's point is really interesting about about when you the McGee case is such mm. an important um, case in this, but that's really the yeah. versus Wade and what had happened. That's the point, US. yeah. Ooh, that was a, that well, was with, with McGee, because you had the right, you know, the, the discovery of the right to privacy, marital privacy, which would eventually extend to the right to a uh, woman accessing abortion, which is the same as Roe versus Wade, which is a right to privacy case and pretty much similar um, cases. And, and the Norris case ties into the yeah. same yeah. legal background, if you like. What is the right? Of people in private, and then, but, but, which is why we ended up with eighth men in the first place because Roe versus Wade was established, and then you had a lot of the groups, the sort of anti-abortion groups in Ireland, saying, "Well, hold on a minute. In Europe, there's a there's a there's a lot of abortion uh, being legalized in Germany and Amsterdam." And you have in America Roe versus Wade extending the right to privacy to the right to abortion. So therefore, we need to get busy and make sure this is in, uh, you know, put into the constitution. But now you look at um, almost the, the the very much the virulent attempt of, of getting rid of Roe versus Wade in the United States. Compare that to Ireland now, mm. which is going through this progressive liberal, you know, probably lo- long, you know, awaited progressive liberal uh, position um, course. Um, but in America, there seems to be a real backlash, and you have Judge Cavanaugh you know, committed to getting rid of Roe versus Wade if given the test case. And if anything happens to Ruth Bader Ginsburg, we could have a third Supreme Court judge appointed and then you could see the possible end to Roe versus Wade because yes. those those guys will be on the Supreme Court for maybe 10, 20 years. Uh, Jared, let me co- bring you back in on a point there. Um, Shona mentioned uh, in relation to Ireland and changes uh, that we've seen happen or starting to happen and you mentioned the change in influence of the church there and the contrast mm. I suppose in the Pope's visit this year and it's another story that was a big-ish story during the year and is covered in a lot of the papers today. In comparison with the visit of Pope John Paul, mm. Um, what do you think we can take from the way that visit played out this year in Ireland and can we say that it was a bit of a watershed moment has Ireland changed that much the reaction to the Pope's visit oh it has uh, I mean I was in the Phoenix Park age maybe 11-ish 
1979. There was nothing like it before or since. You know, walked, uh, I think I was, was it three or four in the morning walking in the dark. Crowds of people out of the streets towards the park. Bags of sandwiches, famous Pope stools, these little folding things and all the rest. And the, the size of the crowd, um, you know, was apparently a million plus. Uh, so there was nothing like it before or since. I was in the um, Crow Park for Pope Francis because I wanted to see it, uh, feel it. And everyone there was full of enthusiasm. But I thought the key thing was that it had gone from being this vast open air um, crowd that almost couldn't be numbered to a very confined, defined Mm. uh, subgroup of our society. And that then became very evident the next day. In, in the Phoenix, Phoenix Park. Park. So they expected half and a million and they did well, have 120,000. Allow for the weather, mm. allow for talking up the difficulties of perhaps some older people who felt they'd have to walk too far and all the rest. But however you slice it and dice it, um, it had become something that was once society-wide, that stood for our society, that was our society, that was absolutely indivisible from, inseparable from our society as a whole. And what I remember about 1979 was the bunting. Uh, how did we ever actually manage to produce all that bunting that was strewn from every house and these, these, these uh, papal flags? And you walked around the city of Dublin uh, during the Francis visit, and I, I live near Church Street in, in Dublin 7, and opposite the Capuchins, there was certainly some bunting. I saw a bit of it here and there. Otherwise, it was almost entirely absent. So that thing of, of the wider society yeah. being connected to this was completely gone. Colm, let me bring you in. I spoke to you on the radio just before the Pope was coming to visit, actually. Um, what's your look back on that now again as we come to the end of the year? Well, one of my abiding memories of that is losing my voice on the Thursday before he came here and having to go on a dose of steroids so I could keep going over the weekend because I was uh, um, uncharacteristically, uh, says he, sarcastically, uh, talking quite a bit. Um, 1.2 million people went in 1979. A third of the population went to the Phoenix Park. I mean, that's an extraordinary thing. And for me, it's, you know, there's no, the, 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 the notion of triumphalism around what this visit you know, the numbers of people who turned out or anything else to me is just a nonsense. It's a, way, it's, it's a waste of time. But let's You have wanted a responsibility a, to be taken. Well, let, let's have, I mean, it's worth having a conversation though about what it tells us about Ireland and where Ireland is at at the moment, where we are at as a people. 1.2 million people turned out then at a time when we didn't have decent roads. We had appalling roads. Like it would take four or five hours to get from Wexford to Dublin in 1979 in a car, probably longer. We didn't have decent cars then. Public transport was rubbish. It was much later in the year. I mean, 300 thousand young people turned out down in Galway in the lash and rain and were there overnight in paddocks waiting for him to arrive as well. So, you know, the weather thing and the distance and the difficulty, I think that was one part of it. But actually, it was probably much easier to get to to get to the Papal Mass uh, last year than it was in, in, in 1979. Mm. The fact that people didn't turn out just is an indication of, uh, I think, as Gerrit has said, how there was less appetite for it. I don't think that signals a disrespect for either the, the, the faith itself or even for the church, but it does show a disinterest. Actually, mm. I think for the, for mm. the church, and that's that's a yeah. different that's a different thing. Yeah. I think I think the the, the church themselves. That the, and when I say the church, by the way, I mean that's an awful phrase to use because it can mean a million different things. But the institutional church, so the hierarchy of the church, in particular the Vatican, handled the entire thing ridiculously. It was horrific the way they handled it. I had no particular intention of even. Uh, being in the country at the time I was actually meant to be away but 
because I couldn't book flights, ended up being here. And then about three or four weeks before the Pope was due to come, there was this extraordinary statement that came out that said it's not clear whether the Pope will even meet with abuse survivors because he probably won't have time. Now, the notion that he would have done that usual thing of ticking a box and meeting with a, a selected abuse survivors in a room and then we'd have, you know, breathless reporting afterwards about how he was moved and, and upset and distressed by it. You and were shocked never in favour of heard. that. Been on the but I mean, that's, it's a bit of a trope. It's what happens everywhere mm. where a Pope goes. And at this point, you know, decades into the public re- revelations across the Catholic world of not just the scale of the uh, of abuse, but the scale of the cover-up mm. and the now proven fact that the Vatican directed that cover-up, that kind of stuff is just dishonest. It's not good enough anymore. So that wouldn't have been good enough. But the idea that the Vatican believed and even that Pope Francis believed he could come to Ireland of all places where this issue has dominated for, what, 25, 30 years at this stage and they wouldn't even talk about it? I mean, that was that was shocking to most people. So... And then, of course, you had the Pennsylvania Grand Mm. Jury Report, which resurfaced everything again. I mean, the world's media descended upon Ireland for the papal visit, but it was because of the abuse issue that they descended here. I remember talking to somebody from Reuters um, and they had a number of crews here. And I said, would you normally have this many people? And they went, no, there's one person in the Vatican press pool who travels with the Vatican and and he would normally go and we'd have, but not this scale. It's because it's Ireland. It's because it's now. It's because the abuse issues. And the Vatican honestly seemed to believe that they could come here and not in any way address these issues. That level of arrogance, because they're not stupid people, but that level of arrogance and the dismissal of this as an issue that needs to be treated seriously was shocking. And again, for all of the words that he said when he was here, Pope Francis, who I admire for, for, uh, on a whole range of issues that he speaks on, on, on poverty, on refugees, on social mm. inclusion, I think he's excellent. But on this issue, he never once acknowledged the Vatican's responsibility for the cover-up. He talked about the cover-up and said those responsible must be held accountable, but he never said who they were. He never acknowledged the proven fact of the Vatican's responsibility for this. And that frustrates a great many people. And I think people have finally woken up to the fact that the Vatican has now for decades and actually for centuries lied about uh, 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 the abuse of children and women and vulnerable adults by clerics has covered up those crimes, has facilitated and colluded with them and has acted to protect itself and it's still doing it. And I think that turned an awful lot of people off and that moved people from being unquestionably faithful to both dismissive and ultimately, as, as uh, myself and George were saying earlier, disinterested, which I think is a, a really it's, serious it's, issue it's for the, the church. It's the disinterest, I think, that the church should be most concerned yeah, about. They, once they have people shouting about them and at them, they're fine. John, a quick word on the poll. But it's the massive disinterest. Uh, I, I, I think there's there's a group of people now who are that are just apathetic to it. They're simply uncharged, um, and um, they will not bring their children to church, and it becomes an unstoppable cycle. Yeah, I think. But at, at the same time, though, um, people under forty uh, have had to live through the reports mm. after reports, the revelations, the level of abuse, the Ryan report. That's sort of. I mean. When you read the Ryan report, it's the type of stuff you'd hear about in Abu Ghraib or, mm. you know, the stuff that is engaged in by dictators like Saddam Hussein, that level of torture against children, the Magdalene laundries, uh, the mother and baby homes, Tum, that went all around the world. And that's another reason why, you know, Ireland is such a small country, uh, was known as a very Catholic country, but unfortunately is the epicentre of child abuse. And that's a really awful um uh, record to have for the Catholic Church in this country. I thought Leo Varadkar's speech was excellent mm. on that day and he and it was very important, you know, he obviously talked about the absence of compassion within the church and he was quite harsh but he talked about the new covenant uh, that the, the, the Irish state and the church would have which is inclusive, you know, obviously you know, 
realizing that many people still in, the, in this country still are Catholic. But it was important also because he was, he was the first head of state or government to speak after the Pennsylvania report and address the Pope. And that Pennsylvania report again, you know, Cardinal World, who was implicated in that report for his own cover up, he was supposed to deliver. Uh, he was one of the lead speakers at the Eucharistic Congress until two days beforehand. I mean, he, that man mm. had the audacity about? to think he was, he going, was going to speak, to speak about speak. his family values exactly. the central mm. importance in this of the country, yeah. in this country. And, he, and only that he was, you know, basically forced out of it, you know, because, out of shame two days before cancelled. And he, he he thought that that would be a perfectly reasonable, respectful thing to do in this country. And and, and that's actually incredibly annoying. Um, but I think, yeah, you're, you're right, Gerald, it's right. I mean, we've, people under 40 in my um, age have lived through ten, three decades of serious Stories. reports mm. and abuse like you could never imagine in this small country. And so therefore, why would you want to have your family or, or engage with the church uh, like that? Well, I mean, the Irish visit triggered something else internationally because in the one night the Pope was here, we had the le- publication, leaking, whatever, of the Archbishop Vic- I, I can't never pronounce the Vigano. Vigano, thank you, God, mm. letter, who had been the papal nuncio in the United States, who had been a senior official in the Vatican, who had been ousted out of the Vatican and sent to the States to cool his heels, wrote this really, really long letter, but really putting the finger on Cardinal Ted McCarrick in Washington mm. and all that subsequently came. Two quick two final qu- points. Two quick Tom. things about, the, about, about that, first of all. I mean, that's part of an ideological battle that's yeah, going with on the church now, where he, where he yeah. represents ultra conservatism within mm. the church and sees Francis oh, as a, a threat to that. And, yeah, so there's that yeah. on, on, on the papal visit, two quick things. I mean, my, my abiding memory of the papal visit was being in, 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 in Parnell Square at the same time as the papal mass, where we held not a protest, but a, a, an event that brought people together where people could stand for something that they felt it was important to stand for. We, we stood for truth, we stood for justice, we stood for love. But 15,000 people turned out despite all of the, the warnings about not being able to get into the city. And the thing I will never forget is we walked silently at the end of the event from Parnell Square to the site of the old Magdalen Laundry on Sean McDermott Street, mm-hmm. a site Francis had driven by the day before. Yeah. And like, like John Paul before him. Unknowing what that was as well. Exactly. Like John Paul before him who drove by that building because that operated until 1996. Yeah. When John Paul II drove by, by there in 1979, the women and girls who were being detained in there weren't allowed out to see him pass by. So we walked there because we were determined to remember that. And we asked people to walk in silence, not in, not in any sense of grief, but, but to walk in silence to assert uh, um, uh, um, our solidarity with and a determination that this wouldn't be forgotten. And I remember walking down the end of down the at the at the head of that down 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 O'Connell Street with thousands of people behind us, walking around the corner where there's a hotel just on the corner where the old Irish aid offices used to be. And I heard a woman putting a spoon down in a saucer. That was the quality of the silence that people That's walked incredible. in. It was incredibly powerful. One quick thing on religion, though, in Ireland. I mean, an, an interesting statistic again that came out of the the RT exit poll for the for the uh, 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 the Eighth Amendment referendum. Seventy four percent of people in that describe themselves as Catholic. People's uh, um, commitments to a set of values, whether it's cultural or felt or whatever else, that's still significant. And I don't think we should ever uh, um, 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 dismiss that. So. The institutions of the church people seem to be disinterested in, but actually a, a commitment to a sense of values or shared values, that's still, still very, exists. very important to Irish people. And remember, those are also the people who voted by a two thirds majority to repeal the Eighth Amendment, by a similar majority to 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 insert the provision on same sex marriage in the Constitution. 
Um, it just proves there's not so a conflict between those two. But it things. just proves that the Catholic Church and those sort of, you know, um, I suppose some of the other churches, they're not reflecting the word of no. Jesus, mm. of the, the message of Christianity, of supporting women, <laughs> of supporting yeah. uh, minorities, of supporting the poor, you know, of having compassion. None of those things, none of the what we've seen from the Catholic Church in its defense of uh, abuse, um, you know, people who abusers, priests, priests who abuse, their uh, massive wealth, you know, all of that, that doesn't reflect what Christianity is supposed to be or the, or the message of Jesus. So, of course, people are still interested in those values but, but they don't get them from the Catholic Church. Now, you're, going to kill me. you're going to kill me for doing this but I have to say I'm one more thing. One more thing on, 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 the, on the abortion legislation. The legislation that's passed, that's tremendous. We believe that legislation will have to be revisited next year because there are serious flaws in the legislation. Yeah, well, Ellen Coyne and Ivana Batchik are coming in Great in the next hour, so we'll talk more about Repeal the Eighth, uh, the campaign, and indeed what's to come in 2019. Now, another story that is featured in a lot of the papers today is this mysterious visit by the former president of Ireland, Mary Robinson, to Dubai. Shona, this story's mm-hmm. emerged over the past few days. I'm conscious it's that time of year when people have been in a bit of a Christmas slump and haven't been paying too much attention to it. And they might be easing themselves back into what's going on in the world today. Will you explain to us exactly Exactly what has happened here. So Mary Robinson's coming under uh, quite a bit of pressure and condemnation from international lawyers and human rights groups across the world for her involvement in uh, the case of uh, a young woman, Sheikh Latif Al Maktoum. She's the daughter of the ruler of Dubai, uh, Mohammed bin Rashid Al Maktoum. Uh, she tried to escape uh, last February. Uh, away from Dubai. She was trying to get to America to claim asylum. And she said she'd been held there against her will by her family. It's not the first time she tried to escape. Um, her boat was intercepted uh, by the Indian government, the Indian Coast Guard, and she was returned back and nobody had seen sight nor sound of her. I remember at that time, actually, I was in Saudi Arabia, actually, when this was happening. And all over Twitter was uh, were people trying to find out her fate because the boat had been intercepted. Now, the, there are many human rights groups, including Human Rights Watch and another uh, group detained in Dubai which specialises in people incarcerated against their will in Dubai who have come to her aid and have been supporting her saying the family have kept her there um, under duress and p- people don't know about her mental state or her physical health as in has she been tortured is she being abused Mary Robinson was asked by one of the wives of the ruler of Dubai to go and visit her as a, from, from a state perspective so Unfortunately, it appears that Mary Robinson may not have been necessarily independent here, although that's not um, that's not being confirmed. But the problem is she's she had a, a, a visit with the with the girl Sheikh Latifa, and she came out after the visit. Now it was an it was a supervised visit, supervised by the authorities of Dubai. She spent a couple of hours with her, and they gave some photos for the press. Mary Robinson went on to say that the young girl. Uh, was a troubled quote in a vulnerable state and she was in the loving care of her family. Now she would argue that she's been held against her will. And so they're concerned so the question is, is has Mary Robinson speaking on behalf of the, the family to Dubai? Yeah, and or you know, or she there to defend the rights of this young woman. I mean, if you look at the language, I was really surprised at this, that she would say troubled young woman against her. This is the type of thing that we heard from, like the aforementioned Catholic Church who were sending women into mountain laundries. But then you have to think, Mary Robinson, of all the people in the world, has credibility on this issue. Former, you know, UN Human Rights Commissioner. She spent her life in this country defending and protesting the rights of women to have their own autonomy against patriarchal regimes. So I would have to, I mean, if anyone asked me, 
if there's one woman who can defend, uh, you know, Sheikh Latifa, it would be Mary Robinson. But it just, unfortunately, there's a question really hanging over uh, whether Mary Robinson had the full facts in front of her. To give an assessment that a woman is vulnerable or troubled is something that a doctor would have to do. Not something that you would say after a supervised yeah. visit of two or three hours with a young woman where then there were obligatory um, Photos, propaganda photo photographs. And yeah, exactly. Colin, personally, what's your view on this? Well, I mean, uh, if we look back at what we know about the cases, so first of all, and, and, and Sean has covered some of it, but she's not the first of, of the children of the Sheikh to try and escape. One of her sisters um, briefly ran away from the family to live independently before being smatch, snatched off a street in Cambridge in the UK by retainers of the Dubai Royal Court uh, in 2000. Um, she then, Latifa herself, attempted to flee to a man in 2002, but she was turned back at the border. She was then held, so she was detained arbitrarily without any access to legal process. She was tortured and she was only released until uh, about three years later. So three years during which she was detained, she had been tortured for simply trying to escape. And her movements were very tightly restricted even after she was released in 2005. So this latest attempt to escape you know, follow, follows on from that. And what do we know about her capture? As Shona just said, the, it was the Indian Coast Guard who, who intercepted the ship. Commandos boarded the tr- ship. Uh, um, weapons and tear gas were used. Uh, all of the crew who didn't resist the ship being boarded were handcuffed and beaten, some of them unconscious. The captain was beaten unconscious and left in a pool of his own blood. The ship was then handed over to the Emirates authorities uh, and they were all handed over to Emirates authorities. The crew, the captain and others were detained for a number of, for, 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 for some period before being finally uh, released. And this intervention by Mayor Robinson is the first that we've heard of Latifa since then. Look, we have to assess this case based on everything that we know. And a lunch with anybody, I don't mind, I don't care who they are, a simple lunch with anybody does not dismiss the very grave concerns uh, um, that surround this case and this young woman and her human rights. Now, I saw I saw that her lawyers have called today for a proper inspection and visit by appropriate experts, both human rights <coughs> experts, also medical experts, to, to assess her condition and the conditions with the which, in which she's either being held or cared for, depending on who you believe. And that would seem to be an appropriate way forward. But look, a lunch with anybody doesn't dismiss the very grave concerns that exist around how this young woman has been treated. So from a human rights perspective, was it a mistake? Was the visit a mistake? I'm not going to get caught up in the sideshow of the visit. Uh, um, I think Mary Robinson is probably best placed to explain that herself. As, as Shona just said, she's somebody of a very considerable reputation and I think she mm. can speak speak to that herself and defend her reasons to going herself. I don't, I don't know what her reasons for going. I don't understand what her reasons for going might be, but that's for her to speak to. What I do know is... But she has issued concerns, a statement and said that she was asked to go and, that, on the BBC, and she's done a BBC. And, 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 she's, and she said she won't say any more beyond all of that and her assessment was her assessment yeah, and, and she's not given, a judgment. She's given her assessment to Michelle Bachelet, who's the current UN Commissioner for Who Human Rights. Who has said that they're still gathering facts yeah. and don't know enough to exactly. comment on Exactly. And also you have to remember, even if this woman has got... Um, issues, you know, troubled or vulnerable, she's still entitled to leave a country mm. to access health care or if whatever in another country or, or request asylum. You know, it's it's perfectly legal. Everybody's entitled under international law to, to uh, request asylum. And she did request asylum at the time. As, as she was being dragged off the boat, she was screaming that she was seeking political asylum. And she the Indian authorities that. should have granted her that. Instead, they handed over back over to the Emirates authorities uh, and, and she wasn't seen until just this last weekend. Jared, what do you make of it? Um, Mary Robinson has been described as a willing pawn in all of this. She's denied that. Could she be an unwilling pawn in this? I don't think she's an unwilling pawn. I, I think she's a naive pawn. 
Uh, I listened to her interview on, on the BBC. I read a statement. She's gotten it wrong. She's gotten it fundamentally, profoundly wrong. Um, and listening to the interview, I listened to a lady, it's, I think, 1987 since she left Shannon Aaron, since she was in a deliberative assembly, and clearly has lost uh, the, how would you put it, uh, the, 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 you know, the, the facility that comes to, with being regularly put to the question. Um, she didn't like being questioned was the impression I got uh, as a listener uh, to that interview. It, it, the tone of it, more than anything else, w- w- was, was quite telling. There's a report in one paper today that suggests that uh, her visit to Dubai was paid for by uh, the Dubai royal family. It's a small thing um, and Mary Robinson is an indelibly decent person, but that also was a mistake in terms of our own, own credibility. Um, but before we lose the run of ourselves, we should remember that, unfortunately, because we have very, very long delayed mental health legislation in this country, um, something similar could actually happen to an adult person here. Uh, people with mental health difficulties uh, actually don't have the full necessary agency for themselves and their own decision making. Um, so somebody who is an adult could actually be kept um, in, 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 a, in a mental institution here uh, without really good safeguards because what we've promised to do three or four years later still has not been put into place. That's a sidebar issue. But if you go to the United Arab Emirates, and I was there once, very good time, very pleasant, a nice hotel, lovely weather, and then you realise there's a whole huge group of people who are largely from the Indian subcontinent and other places, and where they live and how they live is radically different to the experience you've been having for the last few days. It is quite shocking. It has an appalling record, like apart from this story, but in general. Yeah, I mean, that I suppose Dubai does and that part of the world tends to. So, you know, I mean, and particularly when it comes to, to women and this is just kind of a typical a typical case. We see it in nearby Saudi Arabia. Uh, we see it in a lot of those parts of the world. And that can only be changed with through multilateralism to, you know, uh, applying different cultural changes. That was why I remember at the time I, I was in Saudi Arabia and it was when Mohammed bin Salman, <laughs> who we thought was going to be a, a bit more reformer, progressive yeah. or you know, a reformer in some way, although I think people really overestimated what he was going to do. I mean, I'm not Jamal Khashoggi, notwithstanding, Mohammed bin Salman was never going to be a sort of a westernised, bring a westernised Saudi Arabia. But I remember at the time thinking that this uh, this is a really difficult case because I was interviewing women who were hoping to be able to drive in Saudi Arabia and also speaking to women who um, were still frightened of the regime in Saudi Arabia that they, you know, they were speaking out on Twitter and many of them had been arrested. So it was the, the contradiction in terms. So it's just a really sad case. And I'm and I'm and I just Mary Robinson isn't a person who is in any way naive. You know, she's been working at the United Nations for so long uh, after a UN Commission for Human Rights. She was working in the Great Lakes in the Democratic Republic of Congo, where a woman is raped every hour. Pretty much so. It's, this is not a woman who doesn't know the full panoply of how uh, human rights abuses occur around the world. But do you think she she definitely has more questions to answer definitely though in relation has to more this? Questions Would you to agree answer. with that, Colm? I think, like, notwithstanding her record and, so and her standing I, on all I, of this, I completely understand why people have questions they want to put to Mary Robinson. And I think Mary Robinson should answer those questions. But can we also remember there's a young woman, Latifa herself. Mm 
whose plight we have to be desperately concerned about. That's what Amnesty has been focused on for a long time. That's what we'll continue to be focused on. And I, I certainly feel that the calls from her lawyers for appropriate independent evaluation of her health and of the circumstances of her detention or care, as her family would put it, that needs to be put in place urgently. And I, I, I would suggest that, that the appropriate UN uh, body or experts should be uh, should be asked to do that as quickly as possible. One quick thing, when we, when we talk about the year that's just been and we talk about Saudi Arabia, I mean, the Khashoggi murder was just an extraordinary moment as, as, as we look back on 2018 and what it meant. I mean, the treatment of, of media and journalists, the risks now that journalists face as they just go about their jobs around the world uh, uh, has, has just increased significantly over the last number of years. That murder is a really good example of that. One of the things to reflect on that, though, when we look at Saudi uh, and Mohammed bin, bin Saden and how it was viewed, how he was viewed as a possible reformer, you know, the fact that he was he, 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 he reformed laws that it would allow women to drive for the first time. What happened just before those laws were finally introduced or immediately afterwards? Most of the women who campaigned for arrested. the right to drive were arrested, are still mm. being held and were tortured. <laughs> now, the world has been silent on that. And I think that says something about it, even in a year when we're saying that, the, that women's rights and the voices of women matter, mm-hmm. that actually we're not talking about those women in Saudi Arabia at all, that we're not looking to hold that government to account for its, how it's treating those women uh, in any way. There's no zero attention, zero concern on what's happening. To well, it's, a, it's an overall um, problem with the UN system and the multilateral system. The fact that you have people like now Donald Trump, uh, prior to him, you know, George Bush, who decided that the UN doesn't matter and undermines the strength of having conversations with country like, countries like Saudi Arabia and Dubai and our own country and saying, well, hold on a minute, we have an international standard with which you could we, we hope that you could live up to when Khashoggi was uh, killed and it was and it's pretty it's obviously very apparent that MBS bin Salman mm. is responsible for that um, you hear Donald Trump saying well look hold on a minute we're not going to even really condemn this because we have a, a big arms, arms deal, deal with yeah. and, and, and any, any functioning yeah. the only country really that's defending these issues is countries like Canada Without a functioning UN and a functioning system where the international rules-based order is protected, um, then these sort of things are going to happen and Saudi Arabia will get away with whatever it needs to do. But if we look at the focus of media, the lack of focus of media attention on women in Saudi Arabia post Mm. that ban, I think, is post the lifting of the driving ban is a concern. They allowed him to arrest, torture and detain those women and they are still in prison in Saudi Arabia. On the issue issue of media (coughs) attention, I think one of the big stories of the year is Facebook. Mm. and something called algorithms, which I'm still not sure really <laughs> what they are. But clearly they're extremely important and media attention, the way it can be caused and, and driven uh, and essentially paid for by the very regimes that, oh, should be getting media attention because of X, Y and Z. But actually, uh, you know, as we now see social media driving so-called traditional media has had huge I- impact bought and paid for in very very nefarious ways. Now, let's look ahead to 2019, <clears throat> excuse me, for the last few minutes of our panel. Uh, all the papers actually are uh, rubbing their crystal balls uh, for the year ahead. Lots of good pieces. Uh, Hugh O'Connell is looking at the political year ahead in the Sunday Business Post. Ian Guider has a good piece on what happens next. George, what's your big prediction for 2019 or what story do you think we'll be talking about throughout the year? Well, we're certainly going to be talking about Brexit. Uh, we're certainly going to be uh, talking about Trump and in a different way, I think we may be talking about something else here in Ireland. So we have local and European elections in in, in, in May. Um, and if there's a hard Brexit, 
or indeed if there's a Brexit of any sort, I think there will be economic consequences. And if there are economic consequences, there will be political consequences. And there's been a narrative over the last two years or so about the strengthening and the regathering of the centre in Irish politics. And opinion polls to date would bear that out. But if there is an economic shock uh, or even a downturn, and if people are stressed again, uh, don't be uh, sure that that regathering to the centre will, will, will continue. Because one of the things Colm said earlier was about you know, a new generation of politicians and so forth. The, the, the political structure that existed here until 2011 was very solid for, for decades and decades. In 2011, 45% of all TDs entered the Dáil for the very first mm-hmm. time. In 2016, I think about another 33% entered the doll for the very first time. So we now have a habit and capacity of, of changing our mind and changing horses politically very fast. And if there is stress to the economy, there will be social stress and there will be political reverberations. Shona, come in here. Brexit obviously is going to be big on your agenda, certainly for the first as couple of minutes. It has been. Uh, we did all get a bit of a Christmas ceasefire, uh, mm-hmm. which I think everyone needed. Will Theresa May be British Prime Minister halfway through the year? Do oh, you that's reckon? an interesting question. I. Oh, that's an interesting question. <laughs> uh, I think that the path of least resistance from a Brussels perspective is a second it, referendum. Okay. So I think that that's really the only option. I don't know. And it's the only really clear path they have because they can request an, art, an extension of Article 50 and say we'll have a second referendum. But it's just the language in the UK around this is just... It's so visceral. Um, it's about, you know, this day, you know, d- democracy has spoken, even in spite of the fact that we many of us were misled and so many of us didn't understand the context. And um, and, and we know now that actually it's going to have d- dire economic consequences for us. I don't know if Teresa, I, I, OK, I say yes. I'm going to say yes. Got to say yes. Yeah. I'll hold you to that. Colin, what's going to be the big story of 2019 well, I, or I, I something think you'll first, be keeping an I eye think, on? First of all, on Brexit, I think Article 50 will be extended because mm. I think it's the only way they can go forward. I think if, if the UK government gets to a point where it wants where it now believes a second referendum is is the best possible or the least worst option in terms of moving it forward it'll still want to extend Article 50 because they're going to need time to build any kind of environment within which a referendum conversation Mm. and campaign can happen because right now I think if they were told a second referendum they'd be in grave difficulty because they've talked up the idea that a second referendum would be a huge insult to the British people Mm. and to the British electorate so they're going to have to so I think extension of Article 50 is most likely I think Theresa May will probably still be there because Mm. there's nobody really to replace her. They haven't got anybody else to put forward. The fact that she survived this long is nothing short of miraculous and I think she'll still be there. On the domestic front, I mean, I would I would absolutely share share Jared's view that uh, if there are knocks to the economy, things are going to get very bad. But there are big things on the horizon already if we look at what's happening within Irish politics over the next year. Housing and homelessness is, is an issue that I think is going to continue but will increase focus over the next year. If we look at, for instance, there was an increase in the number of homeless families between 2017, September 2017 and 2018 of 20 went up by 21% between September 2017 and September 2018 and 29% of the people in Ireland who are now homeless are children so 29% of the more than 10,000 people who are currently homeless are children and as as we go into the new year Simon Harris who had a a very very good year is looking at a nurses strike a potential potential trolley crisis the big overruns in health all of those kind of things and as Jared said we're heading into elections as well Anything positive to to, to finish on column Well the the positive thing I I think will be the same thing that has been positive over the last number of years a really engaged public a really, really engaged public who care passionately about this country, about the issues that concern them, about trying to build 
uh, the kind of republic where we can have confidence that we're making the right decisions for all of our people. That's the really encouraging thing. And if political parties and political leaders are prepared to not just harness that, but work with that rather than seek to manipulate it, then extraordinary things are possible. And we've seen that on a few occasions over the last few years. Okay, we'll leave it there. A massive thanks to our panel this morning. Colin McGorman, Executive Director of Amnesty International Ireland. Shona Murray, Europe Correspondent for Euronews. And Jared Howland, Irish Examiner, Columnist and Public Affairs Consultant. Happy New Year to Happy all of you. Year. And to you. On the record. On the record. On News Talk.